Welcome to Coffee Ukuda. Today, joining me for coffee is Max Zelinsky, the Managing Director of OpenStakes, which is Corporate Advisory. Max's history is in family office as he served as a Managing Director at l Investments. Uh, Max, OpenStakes, tell me, what are you trying to do with OpenStakes? Um, first of all, thanks for having me, Kuda. Anytime, mate. Um, OpenStakes is, I guess, um, a corporate advisory, if you will, um, that I formed in March this year. Yeah. Um, and it's basically a result, I guess, of me observing the Australian market over the last three or four years. Mm. So I've been with um, my previous employer. Um, and it's a corporate advisory that is predominantly exploring two dislocations in the market, um, one of them being in the property market. So... When I look at the Australian, um, I guess, segmentation of the market, and especially Southeast Queensland, I look at it and real estate's just a huge portion of it. Yep. So for, for me, you know, the insight was pretty rudimentary. It's like if, if you're in Hollywood, you're in the film business. If you're in Southeast Queensland, you have to be in the, in the real estate business. Otherwise, otherwise you're doing something wrong. And, and, and that was, that become quite obvious to me, um, a few years back when I moved here from Europe and I've realized that, you know, in Europe with a lot of the family offices that we worked with, a lot of the conversations were around financial markets. So your, your equities markets, your bonds mm. market, whereas in Australia, um, two things became very obvious. There's a huge real estate property bias yep. when it comes to investments. And the second bias is a home bias. So Australians traditionally, um, like to invest in their backyard. By home, yeah. Yeah, so, so open stakes really, um, I think in the last six months, uh, you know, the business that we've done is um, around securing um, construction finance yep. um, and property finance in general. And then I guess stage two of open stakes, which I'll be working on next year, is exploring the theme of um, direct. Yep which is basically, um, I guess, a bit of a spin on private private equity investment. Um, so traditionally, you'd have, um, you know, large family offices or even medium-sized family offices investing in private equity, you know, via your um, tier one or tier two private equity funders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, your Blackstones, your Apollos, your RECs. Um, but what's happening now is a lot of family offices like to invest in private equity direct. Yep. Um, but there's, I think, room for an advisor there to structure those deals. And that's been happening in America a lot. So you'll have, um, you know, um, your sponsor groups, your operators basically seeking a um, acquisition target yep. and then hiring someone like OpenStakes to essentially um, stitch the deal together with with a funder or yeah. a family office. So starting with stage one all right, of open stakes, which is the property, property arm of it, what do you find as the biggest gap in the market from a corporate advisory and finance, property finance perspective when you're looking at it from high level, helicopter levels as open stakes? I think we're dealing with a lot of 
developers and a lot of first-time developers um, that you know are coming to Queensland from you know either down south or international developers who are trying to make sense of the funding space. Yep. And the funding space in Australia is relatively young as well, especially the private. The private yeah. So, you know, I guess since 2008, um, after all the, you know, Basel regulations came in and, and restrictions around lending, um, you have this emergence of a lot of private lenders. Yep. And because it's an unregulated space, there's really not that many rules to the game. So having an intermediary or a broker yep. who has a good understanding of the land of the lay, sorry, lay of the land, um, is a massive benefit to a developer. Yeah. I find I find that a lot as well. And I totally agree. It's you you have property or private property developers coming in from bigger markets like Melbourne, Sydney, and not understanding that lay of the land as you said, the builder market here, how everything is almost, for lack of a better word, incestuous. Mm. And here your name is one of the biggest things you can only you can keep. Mm. The market knows every individual, every player, it's not big enough where you can go and deal with one builder here and it not to get to another builder. They, there's a big relationship factor and Absolutely. almost to a clicky area. Yep. So finding finding a broker yeah, like yourself who understands that lay of the land and also just the risk items and the contracts hmm. and dealing with a, with a builder here where maybe certain things would fly in a Sydney or Melbourne, but contractors here may be a bit more risk averse or yeah. just understanding it. I find that as a key area, especially in that Queensland market and why it's needed just to add on to that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a really big element. Yeah. Well, it, and, and you know, Kuda, it's, it's not just, um, the difference between being in Queensland and New South Wales, but it's also the difference of what the where the market is now versus where it was 12 months ago yeah. or 18 months ago. Um, and I think for a lot of developers, but also for lenders, it's just uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. So we're learning as we go. Yeah. I think that's it's the same even from the delivery space. And I always say this, whatever data you have, especially as a quantity surveyor, a lot of it is when you're doing your initial report for the, Q, for the funder or you do your putting risks and numbers and saying, well, this building can be built for 40 million or 45 million or 50 million. In reality, we don't have enough data to make that call. All right, the spread is too much. It's been uncharted territory. The market has been haphazard and really it hasn't been stable for a while. Yeah. So whatever data you have is really not applicable. You have to work from job to job, see how proactive the developer is or yep. the builder is and make a call on it. Yep. And unfortunately, if you're not, if you don't have your pulse on the game mm. or your pulse on what's happening in the industry, you can be a lot risk averse. And we're finding that a lot of the jobs are actually not going ahead mm. yeah. as a result of that. Yeah. So from a funder perspective or from a broker perspective, what's the biggest mistake you're seeing at the moment from first-time property developers who are trying to get funding and really get going on their property journey? Mm. Well, 
what's what's the biggest mistake you're finding at the moment, even from seasoned property developers? So really, I think there are three factors at the moment, and it comes down to mi- mitigating the risk for the lender. Yeah. Really, right. So you have crucially your project's LVR position. Yeah. So you know, I guess the more experienced developers or someone who has more capital to put into their um, projects, that's a good signal. Secondly, you have your pre-sales levels. Yeah. Um, so obviously lenders like to see that. And then really it comes down to um, who's your delivery team, who's your builder. Yeah. Um, and at the moment, it's Southeast Queensland. That seems to be the biggest obstacle. And there's really no universal answer to how to solve that. And there are lenders out there who are quite comfortable with um, the builder-developer model. Yeah. Um, as long as you can, um, I guess, support that you have an experienced enough team yeah. to manage the project, the size that you're undertaking. Um, but, you know, there are, there, are, there are lenders out there who are quite comfortable just sitting on their hands and staying staying out of the market until it, you know, until they see how it plays out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my advice to developers is at the moment, you know, you really want to tick at least two of those three boxes, right? So if you don't really have good builder appointed, well, you want to have decent LVR levels mm-hmm. and some pre-sales. Yeah. And then you're probably going to get a bit more leeway, um, with your funders, yeah. um, with funders if, um, you know, in the selection of your builder. But if someone's got a greenfield site, no pre-sales, and they're looking at you know seventy plus percent LVRs, yeah. they're going to have a hard time. Then does that eliminate the build-to-rent model in this in this market, or do you just have to go over and above and proving to the lender that you've got the capabilities from a team perspective? Because you're not going to have the pre-sales, and you might have some commitments for for the leasing. But you're not really going to have, you know, a level of a commitment that's going to satisfy the lender. How, when we're looking at a BTR model, how do we then, for the, how do we satisfy the lender that it's it's a model that's going to work in this market? Because yeah. builder, you're not going to take off. It, it's it's going to be hard to take off, especially on experience, the resourcing. We've got the hospitals going and. In all of southeast Queensland and even northern Queensland, we've got all the Olympics works happening. So for the private developer, it's it's a difficult time to really get the resourcing that's A grade. You mm. you might get a B team or a C team, and you have to do your best with it. So from a BTR model, how would you then position it with the lender? Yeah. Um, well, see, my experience with BTR is that. Um, yet you have a much smaller pool of lenders uh-huh. and it's very much in Southeast Queensland in its infancy stage still. Agreed. Yep. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more projects of that type, right? Especially seeing the recent, um, government incentives, yep. changes in regulations and the fact that you know, we're really living in an era of an affordability crisis, hmm. right? So there's going to be, the market's going to respond to those 
those factors from a funding perspective as well when would you recommend that a developer comes to you because well you know what i've seen most of the times is they come to you and it's a bit too late or they're in a sore spot sore spot yeah. so what's that sweet spot for them to come to a broker like yourself and have that conversation and start getting the feelers out well it, you know I think the good news is, depending on the size of your project, um, the senior debt space in Australia has become efficient enough that you can get projects funded fairly quickly. Uh-huh. Um, I, I generally like, like you know, a, a project for me that's market ready, you know, if someone wants a solid result is to have a valuation ready, have a QS report ready. Yeah. And ideally... Um, have a builder appointed um, because that way we're dealing with certainty of numbers. Yeah. Right. Um, the earlier you start, the more your project is subject to numbers moving around. That being said, you know, funding is such a big component with FISO um, that, you know, a lot of developers like to pick up the phone and just soft sound where the market's sitting in terms of fees and interest. Yeah. To know what to plug into the feasibility so really i think it happens in two stages like if someone calls me you know let's say two or three months before getting evaluation um that's a good time to start the conversation uh-huh. but obviously i don't present those deals till lenders until um the numbers are fairly firm um and as part of coffee Yukuda, i always ask a personal question okay right is this like a lightning round or well yeah i'll give you a couple it is a lightning round, but I'd, I'd like you to actually give me a philosophy on life, right? That's that's really, I like to get into the mind of people who are driven, right? Okay. Yep. And understand the thought process and what the driver is. Yeah. And for my question to you is, what motivates you, right? Uh, I'm, I imagine, you know, most people your age would be very comfortable where they are. With where you are, they'll take it and you know, cruise into the sunset and just go take it day by day and not try to go to the next level. Yeah. Right. For you, what motivates you to keep going? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. We actually had a um, performance coach here on Saturday. Yeah. Um, trying to unpack that. Um, I'm sure it has to do something with one of my past traumas. <laughs> but... Um, You know what, to me, it's, um, I have this idea of having a tribe around me yeah. and that's people in my office. That's my family. It's my close friends. Um, and supporting that tribe and it's not purely financially, but, you know, being part of that tribe, supporting that tribe and getting support from that tribe, that's really what drives me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think. That's one of my biggest motivating factors. Um, and frankly, I, I like doing things that I hadn't done before mm-hmm. and that I learned from. And, you know, I've been guilty of doing things that perhaps weren't the most financially prudent in the past. Yeah. But they've been really interesting learning experiences. Um, and I think in some ways that's more important to me than um, purely the financial gain. Yeah. That's interesting. 
I was I was having a conversation with my this was a couple of years ago, right? I was having a conversation with my uncle, my dad's youngest brother. Grew up in the village in, in Zimbabwe. He's doing well, when he was a kid he would not have imagined that he'd have the life he has in Zimbabwe. And I, I asked him the same question, like, why do you do it? Like how why how do you wake up every day and actually push yourself? And to me he said well, at this point, I'm playing with house money. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's, I've done everything I could have imagined and more. And now for me, it's how far can I go? Yeah. And I guess that's that became my driver because I was there. Like, I could not have imagined what I've already done. Yeah. But I know there's so much more to do. And how how do you get to that point? And it was like, well, yeah, it's house money. Yeah. If it's house money, how far? Well, I, you know what? That, that's definitely a factor, right? The the house yeah. money thing for sure. But but I I think you know that that implies that there is some money that you've made already, right? Was that's always been the case for me? And for me, business. When I think about, did you hear Simon Sinek was talking about the concept of infinite games? Right? Yeah, you know where you have games with um, no rules and yeah, yeah, yeah. so on and so forth. I watched that one. Yeah, and and that that honestly. That's what business is to me, right? I don't really have any hobbies and maybe that's a sad thing. But when you think about business, it really is the best game in the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? And 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 it's and it's fun, right? And mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter, you know, what you do. I, I mean, I, I've been fortunate enough to sort of um, explore the world of wealth management in the past and, 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 and now more so, I don't know, what people would probably traditionally describe as investment banking, right? Yeah. And, uh, and wealth management really deals with capital preservation yeah. and there's, I guess, a lot of romance around Swiss banks and mm-hmm. so on and so forth, but really investment banking and deal making and, and, and dealing with people who do things that are probably perceived by many as risky. Yeah. That's, that's where the fun is. Um, and that's what I find really exhilarating. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, aside from having the vision of the tribe that that's really what it is for me is, is having the ability to, to play, can I play what, what's the best, best sport in the world? Yeah. It's, it's a thrill, isn't it? Like it, I always say it, like I can give you the blueprint, right. On how to play the game, mm. but you're going to be, you got to be willing to take the risks and probably a lot of the people will be like, nah, screw that. I'm not going to take this risk because, but that exhilarating factor is probably the most exciting thing when you're actually within the game and you're trying to figure it out and really win because I'm innately competitive. Mm. And for me, it's always, how do you become the best version of yourself? Yeah. But also playing with the best players. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And and, and that's what happens, right? If, if you play the game well enough, you, you know, suddenly wake up one day and you're playing at a level where you go, huh, I didn't think I'd get here. And you're yeah. playing with some really, really worthy competitors. And sometimes, um, you know, they might be on the opposing end, but I guess that's that's what makes for a... It makes for an exciting journey. That's right. It makes for an exciting journey. Mm. Well, my second question to you on personal side, because I'm really enjoying this, is if you were to, no, when, if you were to project and get to the end of, your career, your work life. What would you want to look back and say, 
default, this is what this is what I've done or this is what I've achieved or this is the legacy, the mark that I've left. It, it, I don't think it's about the size of the project or what it is specifically. Yeah. If, yeah. What I would want someone to say in my eulogy is to say he played the game well and he played it fairly. Um, you know, I, mean, like a, I, I yeah. don't need to build the Burj Khalifa, yeah. you know, um, and it's unlikely that I will, yeah. right? And I might not, you know, um, build the biggest, best thing. Yeah. Um, but as long as I play in the same league and I'm remembered for doing it fairly, um, I'll die a happy man. I like that. I like that a lot. It's it's integrity, right? Mm. For me, it's you play at the high level, but you do it the right way, and you're not gonna you're not gonna screw anyone over on the way, or you're not gonna cheat your way at it. You want to know that I got here because I played the game the right way. Yeah, yeah. I I, I was watching that David Beckham um, documentary. Yeah, um, it's a good one actually. I liked it. Yeah, and and I think what struck me about his journey and. Um, you know, I used to be a fan of his growing up, but I never really thought about it from the, this perspective is that, um, I guess despite the challenges and the hate, um, probably more so off the pitch and on the pitch, he remained a gentleman yeah. throughout, um, and man, he, he had some reason not to be. Yeah. Um, and that, and, and, you know, that, that sort of, that was my takeaway from do that documentary. And I, I thought, okay, well, that's, that's a quality that I admire in someone yeah. and it's how I'd like to play the game. What I liked from his documentary, you know, as a side note, is he was a visionary, right? Mm. And when he was doing it and when he had the crazy hairstyles and he would, he was this pop star or this celebrity football player, which was not really glamorous in football days. And oh. I was a football fan then, and it was like, you know, this is just a pretty boy playing playing, <laughs> playing football. But I guess he saw, he was himself, and he saw where it was going. And all that, just being himself and being a visionary, set him up for the rest of it. It made him marketable, made him, you know, get all these brand deals, and then work towards even now owning into Miami. Yeah. Just that perspective of I'm gonna stick with this. I'm gonna pick my own manager. I don't care who you recommend. I'm gonna have these cornrows, and the next day I'm gonna tint my hair. Then the next day I'm gonna be at this party, whilst being a professional. Yeah. Like for me, that was when you look at it in hindsight, it's like yeah, it would have taken a lot of balls. Yeah. But I actually oh, did enjoy that that part because yeah, he 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 was widely misunderstood for it at the time, and he probably got a lot of heat from his teammates. But you're right, his brilliance, and, and like you said, into Miami is his, probably his masterstroke, certainly mm. with um, recruiting Messi. Yeah. Um, it just speaks to his brilliance. But you're right, it, it was probably always there. He's just never been very vocal about it. Mm. You know what I mean? Because he's such a quiet guy, and you sort of have to go, he's the, he's the um, I guess he walks the walk, he doesn't really talk the talk. Does yeah. yeah. It's actions speak louder than words, I guess, most yeah. of the time. Yeah, but you're right. There's, there's, um, yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of balls there. And, um, I think, I honestly think, but, um, in business, it's not really about intelligence. It's 
you know, there's a bit of talent, bit of intelligence, all those things, but really it's about courage. Yeah. Um, and he, he's definitely shown that throughout it, especially because it's, it's always going to look crazy. Right. That's what I think. Like if it's not, if it's an obvious play. Yeah. But sometimes it's for good reason. Exactly. It's <laughs> crazy. crazy. Yeah. But hot. Yeah. Most times crazy is crazy, but sometimes crazy is the stroke of brilliance. Yeah. I'm a believer in bringing it back to property. You need fundamentals, right? Yeah. The fundamentals are what you're going to fall back to when your career is ending and your legs are slow if you're talking about sport and you really can't, you know, do those fancy skills that Ronaldo's doing. You've got your fundamentals, but to get to that extra mile, to, to get beyond that point, you need that moment of brilliance every every now and then. That crazy superstar dome, um, that Ronaldo-esque, um, Messi-esque, um, I don't know if you follow cricket, like something that's Mr. 360, A.B. De Villiers, something. Yeah, you lost me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I lost most people there. But it's it's that you got the fundamentals right, but you need that stroke of brilliance. Yeah. And especially in this market to really tie it back into property. Mm. You, If you know the fundamentals of what property development is and you know what you're doing and how it works, you just now need to think that a bit out of the box. Uh, you know what? I, I think you have to think a lot out of the box. Mm. In fact, um, look, if you don't have the fundamentals, it, it makes it extremely hard for you to thrive in this market. Yeah. Um, but I would also say a lot of rules are out the window. So Agreed. the fundamentals also don't matter as much. Yeah. Right? The best property developers that I've met um, are guys that just push the boundaries. And what I mean by that, I mean question everything, uh -huh. right? From inception to construction, right? So they'll look at a site. And they'll, first of all, they'll come up with angles that nine out of 10 people would have missed, yep. right? Then they'll go, okay, well, let's say I can make this site work for this. What can I push council on, right? Yep. How can, how can I increase my, you know, GBA, GBA, um, you know, where can I save on construction where other people don't see it, right? And, and I say that very consciously because a couple of years ago, um, you, you know, your financial developers, right? So mm -hmm. people with an investment or financial background, right. you know, it, it, you, they would probably thrive in um, the market of, of the SDU. Yeah. Right? Today, if you don't understand construction, um, I don't think you should be playing this game. Agreed. Um, unless you can make your build stack, you know, where you can generate savings, you know, where you can generate efficiencies, you understand design very well, you know how to talk to your builder. Yeah. Uh, you'd be lost, and and I say that because you know I've been I've been in in rooms with with builders um, where you know I probably understand um, construction better than um, the layperson, yeah. but I certainly don't have the same you know, proficiency as someone else who has a construction background. Yeah. So if I were to manage um, someone's you know multi million dollar project, I, I would probably bow out on the basis that I don't have the fundamentals in, in construction the same yeah. way, um, you know, some of, some of, some of the, um, the people I deal with do. Yeah. Well, cause even on that, 
even builders don't know well I'll say well, this lightly. Look, because there are sure. builders and there are builders. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's the same way there are financiers and there are financiers. You know, then and there's a lot of people who claim to be doctors that they're not. Yeah. It's just it's because the, you tick the box or just because you have the diploma doesn't really speak to the your to your capability. Yeah. Because even with those builders, there's and I guess that's the issue in the market in the risk, right? I, I hear this a lot. We've priced in the risk. There's a lot of risk in this job. We've put 10% risk then, another 10% here. Then we've got a contingency. And you're like, well, the job's not going to stack. Right. Just because you've put in 20% on this job, it's not going to stack. What's the actual risk? They can't tell you what the risk is. Mm-hmm. All they know is two years ago, Rio went from 1,800 a ton to 2,500 a ton. So now I've got to price that in. I'm like, well... If you price that in, the job doesn't work. Is it a is it a risk you can mitigate? Yes. How can you mitigate it? Get a supplier in, lock in your rates for the next twelve to twenty four months if you can. Uh-huh. Right. And actually mitigate it or let's have it factored into the contract some way with rise and fall provisions or something that's going to be one palatable to the lender, but something that's not gonna make the job fall over. Because if you're just going to spread 20% on a job yeah. as quote-unquote risk, we're not going to build anything. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's my frustration with the industry. No, well, well. It, it, it's, it's, it, you're right about that. And, um, you know, I, I think lenders are becoming a bit more open-minded about, you know, the different forms of contracts yeah. and different provisions. Um, definitely more so than what they were six or 12 months ago. Um, because really, you know, in the wake of all the cost escalations and I guess what they saw as a risk mitigant is really, you you know, as a developer, you get a, um, list of, you know, three pre-selected builders that were approved by most lenders. Um, but none of those builders really wanted to, um, take on new jobs, yeah. you know, so it was a bit of a chicken and the egg problem. And <clears throat> I think in the wake of that, lenders realized, well, if we want to do continued business in Queensland, which a lot of them do because fundamentally the market's still strong and, and, you know, prices are still being achieved. Huh. It's just a question of how do you, how do you develop new product? Um, so in the wake of that, they're slowly, slowly opening up their mind to, um, I guess, um, relaxing some of those provisions and, and looking at new ways of doing things. But, um, in my experience, in my view, you know, the investment management landscape, and that's, that's globally, um, the case, um, you know, you need someone to take the first step in a significant way. Yeah. And then the rest of the market follows. Yeah. Well, scared money don't make money. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, um, um, <laughs> from, from an entrepreneur's perspective, that's definitely, that's a, definitely a good catchphrase, but from an investment management perspective, you're dealing with, you know, Safe fiduciaries bit. have to be prudent about, you know, other people's money. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, I respect them for that. <laughs> well, that's a, I think on that note, um, if there's one thing. And this will be the, my last question. If there's one thing you change in the funding space, what would it be? 
It's a well, really, really good question. And we're going to narrow it down funding space in Australia or in Queensland. One uh, thing that are we talking about property specifically or no? Let's let's go everything. Okay, well, okay, well, that, that that's a really easy one then. Um, <clears throat> I think where Australia has fallen behind is on the financing of um, your SMBs, small and medium yeah. businesses. Um, so in America, um, there's a funding regime um, under the Small Business Administration mm-hmm. Department um, called the SBA loan. Yeah. Um, and it's basically a very flexible way of funding and acquiring debt funding for your business yeah. that's underwritten by the government. Um, and it's providing a lot of liquidity um, for entrepreneurs, acquisition entre- entrepreneurs, but also startup entre- entrepreneurs to develop SMBs. Hmm. And that's really lacking in Australia. Um, and the reason I think that's a problem is because um, the Australian market is very, very dependent on real estate. And Australia has the benefit of having the highest population growth rate in any developed nation, which is fantastic. Uh-huh. However, I don't think you can speak or talk about a robust and resilient economy that isn't balanced with a strong SMB market. And what we're dealing with in the next 15 to 30 years globally is going to be the biggest wealth transfer in history. And we're talking about, you know, billions of boomers, yeah. sorry, billions of dollars in SMBs owned by boomers that have no succession plan in place. Yeah. And the question is, okay, well, what happens with those businesses, right? If you don't have a succession plan in place and what's happening in America is you get, uh, you know, young entrepreneurs basically acquiring those businesses yeah. and providing a liquidity event for the exiting founders of those businesses. So yeah. basically providing a, you know, a retirement fund for the boomers. The retirees here. Right. Whereas in Australia, a lot of business people don't have an exit plan for their business mm. and there is no clear path to exit those businesses because of the lack of funding to acquire those businesses. And that I think that's going to be a tremendous problem and I think that's going to be a dislocation in the market that will provide um, tremendous opportunity um, for someone who will be able to work out that funding piece. Oh. That's great, mate. I agree with you. Like, it's a, and I understand the regulation on it, and how it's, how this small business funding is working here, and the reasoning behind it. However, it's something that really needs to be looking at it and listening what, to the. What do you think? Why Why does it work the way it works? Well, it's scared money, right? I think. I think there's a there's a fair bit of risk in having well there's a fair bit of risk in having 
well, young entrepreneurs, right? Bringing in, getting access to funding where they can debt fund a business. It, it gives, yes, it does give the retirees an option, well, cash flow and a way out of their businesses. However, you know, do they have a proven track record that they can run a business? Well, I, I think, well, sure, that, that that's a valid point, right? But you, you, you obviously still need um, prudent underwriting, right? Oh, yeah. So yep. it's, it's not like any Dick, Tom, and Harry can get a loan, right? Yeah. But um, there are plenty of entrepreneurs out there, right? Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of fundable businesses that are not getting any funding because it basically doesn't exist, right? And yep. the underwriting standards by banks in Australia, it's it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. When you talk to brokers, um, you might have a business that is extremely profitable. Yep. Right, does let's say ten million dollars in revenue, yeah, and you get a sponsor group that wants to acquire that business, and the only way they can underwrite that business is by providing their own property, yeah, as security, right? Yeah. So to me, that's not business banking. If a banker can't underwrite the debt of the business based on the merit of that business, I right? agree, and that's what that's what's happening in America. Like I, I understand, you know, let's say the importance of. Um, a personal guarantee or, 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 you know, sometimes you have to, you have to commit your, your property in order to underwrite a deal, but really the business should stand on its own merit. And that's how a business banker should assess the merit of that business to take on additional debt. I fully agree with that. Yeah. So it, it's, it's not, it's not the fact that, um, you know, the SBA regime is, um, loose, it's the fact that in Australia, it's completely non-existent, yeah. right? And um, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not a business broker, uh, but I see an opportunity in space. But when you speak to business brokers or even, you know, uh, sorry, business brokers or business finance brokers, um, you know, you, you'll have businesses on the market that can't sell for a couple of years yeah. despite having really sound unit economics and really sound business prospects. Yeah. And the reason is because usually they're in an awkward um, valuation bracket, right? Yeah. Because your private equity funds don't like looking at anything sub 30 million. And for most people to acquire 10 million business <clears throat> is out of their scope. Yeah. So you're sort of, sort of in no man's land. Um, in that space of you know, of a valuation of five to fifteen or twenty million dollars, mm. where you have a great business, and no one can purchase it from you yeah. because there's no way of funding it. Um, and I, I, I frankly, I think that's that's a tremendous opportunity in Australia, and I think the government should come up with a way of assisting entrepreneurs um, to strengthen um, that pillar of the economy. Yeah, fully agree, mate. I wouldn't agree more as a Small business owner, someone who's owned a few businesses, I just, I even from a business owner perspective, how difficult and how highly regulated it is when it comes to trying to get funding for your business through the banks, mm. like it's something that has to change mm. and it's something that we actually need to look at when we're talking mm. at acquisitions as well. So, well, look, the, the, the real estate market is, is a prime example of yeah. that, right? So in the commercial debt space for real estate. A lot of private funders stepped in and a lot of 
you know, there's a lot of availability of capital. Right. Um, but that's mostly to the fact, um, most of the fact that Australia probably has one of the most sophisticated real estate markets in the world. Yeah. And funders look at it and they go, okay, you know, we have a strong rule of law. We generally have a strong valuation regime. Oh. We have a stable um, real estate market. <clears throat> we feel that in the absence of, you know, ava availability of credit from banks, we can step in and fund these projects. Right? Yeah. And that's great for real estate, but we still have this huge part of the economy called SMB that's been completely neglected. Neglected. Yeah. No, I fully agree. And Max, really thank you for coming through. Thank you, Kuda. Thanks for this conversation. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having coffee with me or whatever we have in the cups. <laughs> um, It'll forever remain a mystery. Yeah, that it will. Um, and appreciate the conversation. And I hope, hope you took away a lot of, from this conversation a few lessons from Max and really on funding and really personal conversations. So I enjoyed this and Max, thanks again, mate. Thanks. Appreciate it. Cheers.